and looks like it's about 11 o'clock. Welcome everyone again to 11th hour. Um, if you have a cell phone, please turn it off or silence it. And if there's questions at the end, I will bring this mic around as I did yesterday so everyone can hear. As a writer of fiction, the thing I admire most, even envy, about my poet friends is their facility for imagery. When I'm struggling with narrative tension, they seem to be evoking all kinds of feeling through vivid, breathtaking images. So today we are very lucky to learn about imagery from Juliet Patterson. Juliet is the author of the poetry collections Threnody and the Truant Lover and the chapbooks Epilogue and Dirge. Her poems and essays have appeared widely in numerous magazines. Her recent awards include the Arts and Letters Susan Atafet Prize in Nonfiction, the Linda Hull Memorial Poetry Prize, and a Jerome Foundation Fellowship. Her most recent writing project, a memoir in progress entitled Sinkhole, has been supported through a Minnesota State Arts Board grant and a Minnesota Emerging Writers grant. Please join me in welcoming Juliet Patterson. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. Good morning. Um, so I am a poet, and as Anna suggested, I think the poets uh, think about image pretty constantly. It's the one major tool we have to create tension or drama. Um, we don't have time to create characters like you do in fiction, to create plot, and we don't have um, the room to reflect and pontificate like you might in CNF. Um, but what I notice a lot in writers of all stripes and sizes and even abilities and experience is that sometimes um, we skid over this wonderful tool called the image. Uh, I'll explain what I mean by the image. Um, and my interest in the image comes from the fact that I am an imagist. But also, uh, I read a lot of science and... Um, I've been very interested in brain science <coughs> recently and, and what they're discovering about language. And for a long time, I used to spout in my classes that uh, a Scottish study that proved that when people read poetry, both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of their brain lit up regardless of whether they were right brain or left brain dominated. And in most cases, a little bridge was created between those hemispheres. That also happens when you take illicit drugs. <laughs> um, so they, they said that poetry was like a whole brain activity, and they couldn't really figure out why. And the one or two theories about it was that it's the line breaks in the poem, that you're disrupting grammar, and so it excites the neurological system of the brain. The other is the image. They were starting to believe that there's so much imagery in poetry that it was stimulating the brain in a different way than, let's say, narrative. So I got really interested in that. I'm following this thread. So recently, uh, they discovered that, in fact, all language is received by the whole brain. I'll get into that in a little bit. So the role of the senses. It's probably obvious, it goes without saying, <coughs> that our first contact with reality begins with a picture. I think this is also important to remember that we are now a visual culture. We are no longer a literary culture, right? So stimulating your reader with an image is not a bad approach. But this is how we perceive the world. We run around with our eyes open, our ears open, and we take in the world through sense data. 
And that's how we make sense of the world. An image, by definition, <laughs> is anything presented to the consciousness as a bodily sensation. Now, in poetry, we get a little more strict about it. But descriptive detail, details around action, um, metaphor and simile, we'll get into that. An image deepens, activates, invokes, invites. So all these verbs suggest that an image brings a reader somewhere, right? They move us. And I would say they move writing forward. Um, they're hard to define in isolation because they don't necessarily sit still. We're going to try to do that a little bit later. So we, we call those kinds of images concrete. That's from a Latin word meaning solid, as opposed to ideas, which are abstract, also a Latin word, which means to withdraw. So here's some examples of concrete words. Violet, bread, sunlight, surf. Okay, let's back up. I'm going to say the word violet, violet. How many of you have a picture in your head? All right, vast majority of you. Here are examples of abstract language. Entity, nutrition. Entity, who has a picture? One person. <laughs> All right. So in poetry, primarily, we talk about figurative images. Um, that's usually the metaphor or the simile. And poems, I would say, are not trying merely to describe or convey information. They feel pleasure. They give us pleasure. They're attempting to attack the body of the reader. Maybe attack isn't the best word. <laughs> um, it's about discovery and surprise. And those are so essential in poetry because of the compression of the form, right? It has to happen in a space of 12 lines, or 32 lines, or 80 lines. And this kind of discovery in poetry is very dynamically expressed in figurative imagery, otherwise known as simile and metaphor. I know this is review, but beginner, beginner's mind is always good. So just go back to fourth grade with me now. Simile, you use the words like or as in the equation, yes? So here's some examples of similes. The attic wasps went hissing by like bullets. She rides her hips as if it were a horse. The waitress looks at my face as if it were a small tip. The insertion of this word as or like, in my opinion, is the speaker coming into the image. The speaker is the guide here. The speaker is the one making the comparison and that small little link word is your cue, right? But these all create a picture, don't they? Some kind of picture? Which of these creates the strongest picture in your mind? Call it out. Bullets, waitress. Any others? What about the waitress? 
defend the waitress. <laughs> Where are you? Oh, hello. <laughs> so you can actually see that? OK. And Sarah, you said the bees or the wasps, bullets? Martha? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So a simile or metaphor is a comparison. It's bringing two things together that don't normally go together and causing a surprise, right? They both have what is, I would call an object half and an image half, right? So in the first example, the attic wasps are the object. They're the thing being described. And what are they doing? They're hissing by like bullets. And you can see the movement, because I've made that comparison to bullets. Instead of just saying the attic wasps were flying around in the attic, there's something happening. Yes? Yeah, because it's more abstract, or why? Because. <laughs> All right. So the success, obviously, of a figurative image depends upon the relationship in the reader's mind between this object and image, between the object and description. And so some of you are gravitating towards that waitress because maybe it's funny, or you can you can immediately see the dollar bill, and some of you are gravitating towards the wasp because you can immediately see this is the risk of simile and metaphor. We sometimes think of them as being a little more abstract than a concrete description, which I'll explain later. Um, the risk is that if your comparison isn't well uh, established, <laughs> the reader's not going to get it, right? So here's some um, examples of metaphor. In my poetry class, I'm driving my students crazy because we're really, really diving deep into the difference between simile and metaphor. Um, and it's really quite profound in my mind. Metaphor originally in Greek means to transfer. The whole idea of a metaphor is to take the reader and move them to some other place, literally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So. You're also transferring one thing, the identity of something else, to associate it with. A lot of writers talk about metaphor being um, unqualified. It's more concentrated. It might hit with more impact. Though interestingly, I would say American readers often get confused by metaphor. I'm speaking very generally. Ted Kuzer tells you not to use too much metaphor, um, for example. European poets would say otherwise. <laughs> uh, so here's some examples of metaphor. The lion's ferocious chrysanthemum head. 
the moon, new moon's just a luminous zilch. And summer was slack, a dog chain with its dog gone. Now I'm just curious, how do you experience these bits of language compared to the simile? I know they're different images altogether, but do they strike the same way? This is a participatory lecture. Yes, Sarah. A process in her head, it's an unfolding. I think that's really well said. Because you have to. <laughs> creating a scene instead of a single image. That's fascinating. The writer. Insisting, the, the writer insisting, like I'm coming over here to pull you by the collar. Well, that's so interesting. Hmm. That's so interesting. Now, my sort of analogy about that is, simile is, I am the writer. I'm coming in to dazzle you with my brilliance. And the metaphor is more like, here's a ball. I'm going to throw it in the air. But yes, I can see your point. All right. So we talk a lot about the brain being um, left brain dominated, right brain dominated. That's how we've thought about the brain for a really long time. Um, it's partially true. It's not all true. So the left side of this chart, you can see if you're left brained, which is uh, I guess most of the population in America, uh, something like 5% of us are right brain, but I don't really buy that. You'll see why. All right, left brain, you're supposed to be logical, symbolic, rational, linear. You like systems, you're analytical. Uh, if you're on the right side, you're big picture, you're random, you like creativity. You like feelings, imagination, dreaming, have a hard time making decisions, maybe. All right. Do you, all of you have a sense of whether you're right or left brained? Have you been told this by someone? Or Yes? Fifty-fifty. This is what I mean. I'm suspicious. Yes? Mm. No, it's not. It is, there is a correlation, but not a definitive one. All right, we're going to take a test. This is a dancing woman. Look at the woman for a few minutes. And which direction do you see her spinning? 
if you see her spinning clockwise to the right, you are supposedly right-brained. How many of you are seeing that? Whoa. All right, I was getting to that. <laughs> How many of you see her going left? Okay, if you see her going back and forth, your brain is very skilled in utilizing both halves of the brain. Now, those of you seeing spinning to the right, look at her feet for a while. Just look at her feet and nothing else and see if you can get her to change direction. Aha. Okay. The real truth of the matter is we are in the middle, but we've been conditioned, socialized. We may have jobs that demand a certain part of our brain be more ignited than the other. We have practices that we do in our life, yoga, drinking, <laughs> golfing, watching too much CNN. Those all contribute to how we're perceiving the world. But we have the power to just switch directions, okay? Cool, right? Okay, here's a better picture of the brain. This is kind of what we, our uh, scientists, our wonderful scientists, are starting to discover. So, for a long time, um, they thought that language was kind of housed in uh, actually right here in this blue section, which is now labeled memory of sound. This is the part of the brain that when you're first learning words, the words are st stored there because how do you learn words? How do you learn words, people? You memorize them, but you hear them. <laughs> yes, you can't read for a long time, most of us, right? You, you don't come out of the, you're not reading in your crib. Let's put it that way. So language acquisition happens through oral communication, and it's stored here in the sound. What they know now, though, is there's these little tiny parts of that blue area, see here, this little green circle, where nouns are stored. And a little other piece where auditory cortex, so that would be things like syntax, inflection, right, diction. You are the product of the voices that surrounded you as a young infant from zero to seven. Okay. Back here, in this area, this orange area, visual memory. Visual memory. And down here, sight. Interestingly, the amygdala is back here. Does anyone know what that is? What's the amygdala? That's right. What does the flight or fright do? Fight or flight do? Keeps us alive. Okay. Our amygdala has not evolved very much in 300,000 years or however old we are as humans. That's why we have anxiety we're still responding to the environment as though we've just walked out of the cave with a spear. 
oh my gosh, there he goes, that man with the red tie and the scotch tape. Get him! All right. E.K. Lauren talked about this last year. So we perceive first the world through our visual memory because it's about surviving. Because we have to know, if I walk up to you, Anna, and are you safe? I'm going to check you out. <laughs> are you sexy? I'm going to check you out, too, that way, right? All about survival, OK? So we're reading all these cues visually before anybody says a word, before we even think a word. I know you think this isn't true, but it's true. Because we have thoughts now in our head all the time, because we have language. We've had language for a long time. So they're kind of running at the same time. But the real truth is your brain is interpreting the bodily signals, the visual signals, before any language happens. Okay? You with me? Now I'm going to play a little radio clip. I wish it was as glamorous as just clicking on something. It takes about five minutes. And now a story about a duck. Oh, more precisely, a story about what your brain just did when you heard the word duck. Chances are it created an image of a web-footed waterfowl. Your brain also may have recalled the sound of quacking or the feel of feathers. NPR's John Hamilton reports on new research suggesting that these mental simulations are essential to understanding language. Just a few decades ago, many linguists thought the human brain had evolved a special module for language. The idea that our brains have some unique structure or system seemed plausible. After all, no animal can use language the way people can. But in the 1990s, scientists began testing the theory using new MRI technology that let them watch the brain respond to words. And Ben Bergen of the University of California, San Diego, says what they saw didn't look like a module. They found something totally surprising, and that was that it's not just certain specific little regions in the brain regions dedicated to language that were lighting up. It was kind of a whole brain type of process. Bergen says if you were to put someone in a brain scanner and read them a sentence like, the shortstop threw the ball to first base, you would see a distinct pattern of activity. What you'd see is that parts of their brain would light up that are dedicated to vision, and the motor centers in their brain would light up. And the question was why? They're just listening to language. Why would they be preparing to act? Why would they be thinking that they were seeing something? Bergen says the answer is that when we encounter words describing a particular action, our brain simulates the experience. The way that you understand an action is by recreating in your vision system what it would look like to perceive that event and recreating in your motor system what it would be like to be that shortstop, to have the ball in your hand and to release it. Bergen says the brain appears to be taking words, which are just arbitrary symbols, and translating them into things we can see or hear or do. He describes this theory of language in his new book, Louder Than Words. Bergen says it's easy to understand how words could cause the brain to recreate familiar things, like throwing a baseball or seeing a duck. But what about things we've probably never seen, like a flying pig? So a flying pig isn't something that actually exists in the real world. And yet I'm seeing one in my head right now. That's right. And I know something about the flying pig in your head. It has two wings. Yes. And they're attached symmetrically. Correct. Uh, probably right around the shoulder blades. Right around the shoulder blades. Right. And it uses those wings probably to propel itself. Yes, it's flying with those wings that's, in my head. That's right. A flying pig has meaning to me because my brain is using things I've seen, pigs and birds, to imagine something I've never seen. 
Of course, that's my version of a flying pig. Bergen says other people see a pig with a cape flying like Superman. In either case, though, the meaning is based on our own experience. And Bergen says that's also the case when we use language to convey abstract ideas, like truth or justice or even the word meaning. What we actually say when we talk about meaning is, do you see what I mean? Is my point crystal clear? Maybe let's shed a little light on the subject. Bergen says what we're doing is extending our physical experiences, in this case things we've seen, by turning them into metaphors. And he says we do this all the time in conversation. We grasp the truth. We dodge questions. We fall in love. Philosophers have been debating the importance of metaphors like these since the time of Aristotle. But now, brain researchers are getting involved, people like Krish Satyan at Emory University. Satyan has been studying an area of the brain that responds to the texture of an object, whether it feels smooth or rough. And he wondered whether the same area would respond when we use textures like smooth or rough as metaphors. So we ran this experiment where we had people listen to textual metaphors like he had a rough day and contrasted the activity with sentences more or less matched for meaning but without the textual metaphor like he had a bad day. Satyan says the results suggest that, in the brain at least, a rough day has something in common with a sheet of sandpaper. When listening to these sentences containing textual metaphors, we found activity in the part of the brain that's involved when we feel surfaces. Satyan says research like this adds to the evidence that the human brain is not processing language in some special module. The brain is really working as a very highly distributed system. So it's really very hard to think about any experience that we have in a highly modular fashion in the sense that it's being processed only in one region of the brain and not in others. Ben Bergen says what's amazing is that we're able to do so much with language using the same basic brain structures found in monkeys and apes. What evolution has done is to build a new machine, a capacity for language, something that nothing else in the known universe can do. And it's done so using the spare parts that it had lying around in the old primate brain. The parts involved in seeing and feeling and moving. John Hamilton, NPR News. Did you get that? The metaphor, rough day, which is not a great metaphor. That's a cliche metaphor. Stimulated the brain as though it were touching a piece of rough sandpaper. Imagine the possibilities at your disposal because you are going to write much better metaphors than he had a rough day. So the metaphor, the simile, the image received in the body first, then in the intellect. That is the power of the image. You skip seven steps. You get the emotional heart of the reader. And you strategically, fiction writers, nonfiction writers, <laughs> wow, you can pack a punch. They're also really efficient. Metaphor and simile are efficient. So brain science is backing this up. Brain science is telling us it's first emotional, it's visual and emotional feelings back here. Then it's intellectual because we're teasing out what it is in an instant of time because it's efficient, the metaphor and simile especially. Um, I was going to talk about Im images poetry, but I think I'm going to skip it and go right to some, some examples. Here's a poem by Ocean Vong. Um, so if I make that smaller, can you still read it? 
Okay, I'm going to let the poet read his own poem. You ready? Obad with burning city. Milk flower petals on the street like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. He fills a teacup with champagne, brings it to her lips. Open, he says. She opens. Outside, a soldier spits out his cigarette as footsteps fill the square like stones fallen from the sky. May all your Christmases be white as the traffic guard unstraps his holster, his hand running the hem of her white dress, his black eyes, her black hair, a single candle, their shadows, two wicks. A military truck speeds through the intersection, the sound of children shrieking inside, a bicycle hurled through a store window. When the dust rises, a black dog lies in the road, panting, its hind legs crushed into the shine of a white Christmas. On the nightstand, a sprig of magnolia expands like a secret heard for the first time. The treetops glisten and children listen. The chief of police face down in a pool of Coca-Cola, a palm-sized photo of his father soaking beside his left ear. The song moving through the city like a widow, a white, a white, I'm dreaming of a curtain of snow falling from her shoulders. Snow crackling against the window, snow shredded with gunfire, red sky, snow on the tanks rolling over the city walls, a helicopter lifting the living just out of reach, the city so white it is ready for ink. The radio saying run, run, run. Milk flower petals on a black dock like pieces of a girl's dress. May your days be merry and bright. She is saying something neither of them can hear. The hotel rocks beneath them, the bed a field of ice cracking. Don't worry, he says, as the first bomb brightens their faces. My brothers have won the war, and tomorrow the lights go out. I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming to hear sleigh bells in the snow. In the square below, a nun on fire runs silently toward her God. Open, he says. She opens. 
Um, one more thing, and so why does all this matter? This matters because you can use this as a tool, again, to reach the reader emotionally and at a bodily level. An image is going to do that faster and more efficiently than anything else. So you don't have to become Annie Dillard or Louise Erdrich, who are very lavish in their imagery. But think about you know, where are the key points in your story? Where are the key points in the novel that you really want the reader to be drop into their body? All right. Well, thank you. Go forth and make pictures.